Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Choices. I am your host, Kim. Hey, it's our anniversary today. Congratulations, we made it. You have survived one whole year of listening to me ramble and babble on about murder. Yay, us. I stumbled across this case a while back while listening to an interview of the primary detective in this case, and he said that the case almost broke him. This is a big, burly Hamilton detective, I mean, almost in tears, talking about a case from 22 years ago, so that kind of really drew me in. And I'll tell you, it it just broke my heart hearing it, and I, I can't even bring you any lessons from it. There's no red flags. Know, research papers on why these kinds of things happen or legal issues that it brings up it's it is just tragic and the ripple effects of it just remain without any reason since it's not the kind of murder that creates causes and memorial funds or scholarships it's the kind of murder i think most of us fear the most um even though statistically thankfully they are very rare this is the murders of pascali Del Sordo, and Charlisa Clark from Hamilton, Ontario. The city of Hamilton, located in southern Ontario, wraps around the western end of Lake Ontario. There is an old Hamilton, which existed prior to 2001, which was divided into 100 neighbourhoods, and it was amalgamated with the region of Hamilton-Wentworth on January 1st, 2001, and the population on that day went from 330,000 to over 500,000, with a single municipal government ending the subsidization of the suburbs surrounding the old Hamilton. But this story starts on June 18th, 2000, before the amalgamation, on Father's Day morning. A small, blonde little boy of no more than three toddled out of the front door of the apartment building he shared with his mum, and like he had seen his mum do before, locked the door behind him, only leaving the keys dangling from the lock. 
and then headed down the sidewalk toward a convenience store about a block and a half away. It had rained earlier in the day, but it cleared up. But the sidewalks and the roads were still showing puddles that were drying slowly in the late day sun. This was around 4.30 in the afternoon. Meanwhile, Ruth and Flavio del Sordo had awoken that morning to their 26-year-old son, Pascale, who friends and family called Pat's empty bed. Annoyed that they had made Father's Day plans to see that their son had disobeyed one of the house rules, the Del Sordos were a traditional family, and Pat was their firstborn. In their culture, the men in the family remain living in the family home, helping with bills and such until they get married on their own, and as they are grown men, they are free to come and go as they please, but were expected to spend the night, every night, in their own bed at home. So Ruth and Flavio had been trying to reach Pat with no luck, and he had also taken the work van when he went out to see his girlfriend, Cherlisa, the night before. Flavio had a renovation company and his sons worked for him, so Ruth and Flavio got into their other vehicle and started driving around looking for him, or at least the van. On King Street, they spotted the van. Flavio called one of his other sons who brought the spare keys and Flavio drove the van back home. At a convenience store near King Street, the toddler walked through the doors of the store and immediately vomited on the floor. He was wearing only a dirty t-shirt, bare feet, and a diaper that appeared to be ready to fall off from the weight of it. The store clerk said something was very wrong from his appearance and the fact that this boy was alone. He called the police, suspecting that there was neglect. A patrol officer that I could only find named as Constable Carter was nearing the end of his shift and looking forward to his own Father's Day plans when he received the call of the lost child and took the call assuming it was likely going to be something fairly quick to handle. When Carter arrived at the store and he saw the child, I think it was fair to say that he was pretty concerned. The boy was quite dirty and his diaper was full, full. And he's only three, so he's verbal, but not very articulate verbal. So all Carter can get out of him is talking. He's talking about paint on the walls and mummy's gone. The clerk told him that he had been sick when he came in. So Carter decides to get him outside for some fresh air. And when he does, two women from the neighborhood recognize the boy as Eugene his mom, Cherlisa, lives nearby, so they walk Carter and the boy to an apartment building on King Street. They walk around to the back of the building because that's where they knew which apartment was her based on the comings and goings. Carter knocks on the door but doesn't get an answer. He announces himself as police and knocks louder, and at this time he's getting a bit annoyed because, of course, they still believe that this is going to be a neglect case. But when he bangs the second time on the door, it opens a bit. Um, and the chain on the door is still latched, um, the inside chain. And he just gets that feeling that something, something's not good. So he tells the two women to take Eugene with him for a bit and get him cleaned up. And he calls for backup just in case. Someone else who lived in the building told Carter that the keys to Charlisa's apartment were hanging out of the door. So when Carter and his backup walked into the apartment, it it was messy, but not like not like ransacked messy or hoarder neglectful messy, but more like when you have 
It's like when you have one of those Friday nights when the kids just kind of take over the house because you're exhausted, so you let it be and you get to it tomorrow. You know, those kind of messes where you just leave the plate on the counter with the crust of pizza left on it, step over the Teletubby dolls and the Lego and pluck the dirty socks off the couch and then throw them on the floor and then you just flop on a heap in the couch. It's that kind of messy. But the master bedroom contains a complete horror show. There are two nude bodies covered, like covered in blood, with blood splattering the walls, which explains Eugene's comment of the paint on the walls. The man is face down on the bed, and the woman is kind of in like a kneeling position on the floor on the side of the bed closest to the door, with her arms and her head resting on the bed. Both appear to have been viciously bludgeoned. Now retired detective Don Forgan was brought in as the lead detective on this case. He's initially heartbroken to learn about Eugene as a potential witness. The case, of course, was particularly violent and gory. The mattress of the bed was completely saturated in blood with blood smears on light switches, walls. I mean, blood is everywhere. An autopsy would later reveal that both Pat and Cherlisa were bludgeoned to to death, struck with a cylindrical object a number of times over the head and face, with multiple skull flexures and brain hemorrhaging. There's no sign of forced entry, and it appears very personal based on the level of violence. The forensics team finds a bloodied baseball bat under a pile of clothes, which is believed to be the weapon, and it was tested for DNA and fingerprinted, and on it, they were able to extract a single palm print. But in in the year 2000, palm prints weren't in a big database. Um, They were actually still on index cards, so it was going to be a long process of elimination. Eugene was taken to the station to be delicately questioned, but other than the paint on the walls and Mummy and Pat were sleeping, they weren't really able to get much from him. But it was it was just heartbreaking to talk to him about being alone in the apartment with his mum and Pat. He was traumatized completely and was placed in Charlisa's mum, Sue's custody, uh, where he would remain in, and continue to be raised until he turned 18. The part that really got to Don Forgan though and stuck with him and even caused him to temporarily lose his composure was that when they used a blue light in the apartment it revealed in addition to all these smears of blood on the wall in the master bedroom that um, appeared to be made in a very ineffective attempt to clean up there were also tiny little footprints tracking from the bedroom where his mom would have been laying out to the kitchen and back and forth Little Eugene was waiting for his mom to wake up and had gone about his morning and even made himself a bowl of cereal. He had been there for hours before leaving to go to the store for help. Charlisa Clark was 24 and an accomplished artist who did a lot of volunteer work with at-risk youth. She had been in an abusive relationship with Eugene's father and was starting over on her own. She had only recently moved into the apartment and had reconnected with Pat, who she had gone to high school with. Um, They had been dating just for a few months. She had recently had her art showcased in a gallery 
uh, and a neighbor had lent her the baseball bat that was used to bludgeon her to death because she was nervous about the area that she was living in, so she kept it by the front door as a precaution. Pat was 25. He was working for his dad's construction company, and according to one report, a father to his own child from a previous relationship. He was quite talented as a carpenter, and both Charlisa and Pat were upstanding citizens in the community, close with his family, and a respectful and helpful son. On the Saturday before the murder, Pat, Eugene, and Charlisa had spent most of the day together before Pat met up with some friends. And then around midnight, his friends dropped him off at home, and he received a call from Charlisa that she had put Eugene to bed. He hadn't been feeling well. And she wanted him to come over for a little, you know, alone time. His mom, Ruth, said that she wanted to tell him not to go because they had plans for Father's Day the next morning, but she didn't because Flavio is always telling her to let the boys be. They are grown men, um, and which is something that she says she regrets every day of her life. Suspects that hated either or both of them enough to murder them are pretty hard to come by. But there was Eugene's father. He admitted to being angry with Charlisa and had been denied access to Eugene, but was not the owner of the palm print that they had found and had a bit of an alibi in his mum. But he did fail a polygraph test, so maybe. And then there was Pat's father, Flavio. Investigators did think it was strange that although he said he didn't know where Charlisa lived, they had found the van and moved it, and then when he was asked to take a lie detector test, he refused. But he was also ruled out as not being the one, not being the palm print on the bat. And like Detective Dave says, when the information stops coming in and all avenues available are exhausted, the case went cold. Then on August 20th, 2001, another vicious beating death. The body of 36-year-old Jackie McLean was found bludgeoned to death in a vacant loft in the seedy Sandbar Tavern in downtown Hamilton, a known crack house. Blood spatter expert Craig Moore of the Niagara Regional Police determined that Jackie had likely been hit twice just inside the apartment entrance before being dragged by her feet up the stairs to the loft. Once in the loft, while on her back, she was struck another four times by a 25-pound metal 2x4. She was sexually assaulted while unconscious or perhaps even dead. Um, The semen semen sample extracted was located really high in the vagina, suggesting she did not get up and walk after intercourse. The day after Jackie's body was found, a man known only as Shane was staying in in a resident rehab facility when a former welder named Carl Hall booked himself into the center. Now, Shane didn't really like this guy, Carl. He seemed mean and cold, but for some reason, Carl took a liking to him and would seek him out to talk to. Carl didn't stay at the rehab place very long. Carl became a suspect in Jackie's murder fairly early because his DNA matched the sample of semen that was found in Jackie, and several eyewitnesses recalled him exchanging angry words with Jackie at Big Lisa's bar the night before her body was discovered. They discovered this connection when he was arrested in Brantford for uttering threats. Shane contacted the RCMP and told them of one night Carl telling him that he had killed two people in Hamilton, a man and a woman with a baseball bat during one of their chats.
One of the things I've discovered over the course of the pandemic and avoiding humans is the convenience of having your groceries delivered. With Instacart, you can shop from a variety of your favorite stores all in one order and have them delivered right to your door in as fast as one hour. By clicking the link below in the show notes, you can get free delivery on your first order of over $35, and Instacart will know that I sent you. Available in 5,500 cities in the U.S. and Canada, with stores like Walmart, Real Canadian Superstore, and Costco, just to name a few. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. He said that Carl had told him that that he used to buy drugs from a guy named Peter who lived on King Street. And this Peter had been harassing his ex-girlfriend, so he needed to be dealt with. Peter lived at the time in the same apartment that Charlisa and little Eugene had recently moved into. He came in through the glass patio doors, grabbed the baseball bat from the front door, and found Pat in the darkened bedroom and beat him with the bat, then saw Charlisa and felt he had to beat her too. He never stopped to consider that Peter maybe no longer lived there and that Pat was not Peter. Little Eugene lost his mother, Sue lost her daughter, and Ruth and Flavio lost their oldest son because of mistaken identity. The palm print found on the baseball bat was a perfect match to the prints on file for Carl Hall. I won't bore you with all the details of the trials, but Carl was charged with first-degree murder for Jackie McLean's death. He pled not guilty. He went to trial for Jackie's murder in 2006 and was convicted despite his weeping plea that, quote, I have no remorse for something I didn't do. He was serving a life sentence for Jackie's murder in 2007 when he pleaded guilty to the murders of Charlisa Clark and Pascali de Sordo. For Pat and Charlisa's murders, he was handed two concurrent life sentences for second-degree murders and 15 years parole eligibility. The Ontario Court of Appeal ordered a new trial for Hall in 2011 after it found the trial judge made errors in her instructions to the jury. Carl's defense attorney, Russell Silverstein, argued at his second trial in 2012 that Carl had been partying with Jackie, who was a known sex worker and had consensual sex with Jackie, but that the evidence pointed to the fact that Jackie had put her underwear back on after having sex with Carl and that there was no evidence of blood spatter found on his shoes or his clothing. The defense claimed that the most likely suspect in Jackie's murder was a man named Barry Lane, who had argued with Jackie over drugs and was desperate for crack. 
His footprint was actually found in Jackie's apartment, but he claimed he only went there to look at Jackie's naked body, but he didn't kill her. In June 2012, Ontario Superior Court Justice J.R. Henderson acquitted him of Jackie's murder due to the lack of blood evidence tying Carl to the crime. And when he heard the verdict, Carl couldn't help himself and glanced behind him to Jackie's family members, giving them a smirk. When he was led out of the courtroom, Jackie's sister Cindy spat at him, you're an asshole, and then turned to the media and said, I know he got off twice, once in my sister's underwear and once in the courtroom. It's unfair. Carl Hall is still serving his two life sentences for Pascali and Charlize's murders. Eugene was raised by his maternal grandmother. Detective Don Forgan stays in touch with him. He is doing well by all accounts. And that was the horrific murders of Pascali DeSordo and Charlisa Clark over mistaken identity. I initially thought these kinds of murders were pretty rare, but upon looking it up, just here in Canada, there's actually been several that have happened. In 2008, Dylan Ellis and Oliver Martin, who were both 25 years old and best friends, were shot and killed in Dylan's Range Rover on Walnut Avenue in Toronto in what police believe in that case was mistaken identity. In May 2010, Leanne McFarlane and Jeffrey Taylor were found dead in their home in Cranbrook, BC. Both of them had been shot to death in that case. Police believe it was a targeted incident, but that Leanne and Jeff were not the intended targets. Colin Correa and Sheldon Hunter were charged with first degree murder, but they were both acquitted in 2021 for that case. On June 23rd, 2018, in Surrey, BC, Paul Bennett, a father of two young boys, a nurse and volunteer hockey coach, was gunned down in his driveway. That case is still unsolved. And most recently, in June 2022, so really recently, Randy Butchines was at Saskatoon's Royal University Hospital in the cafeteria. Um, He was there because he was receiving cancer treatment at age 55, having already survived it once before, when he was approached from behind by Kevin Wichican, who drove a screwdriver into his skull, mistaking him for someone else. Miraculously, Randy has survived so far and is currently in ICU in critical but stable condition. Kevin, of course, has been charged with attempted murder. Okay, so I was wrong. It happens. Maybe we should all start wearing name tags. Before I go, I do have some kind of exciting news. At least it's exciting for me. I am being interviewed on Thursday this week by Megan Judge out of Los Angeles. She's a public speaker and has this pretty big podcast called Judging Megan, which you can find on any of the usual platforms. She is a trauma survivor herself, and on her podcast, she has guests that talk about their own experiences with trauma. She's had some pretty interesting and high-profile guests like... um, Diane Foley, whose son James is a journalist. He was killed by ISIS. Olympic gold medalist Ariana Cooker-Smith and celebrity chef Wayne Elias. So I'm quite thrilled that she has reached out to me and asked me to be on her show. 
I'm not sure what kinds of questions she's going to ask me, but her podcast deals with healing and moving forward from grief and trauma. So I hope that I can talk to her about resilience and how our family, and I guess particularly myself, since I can't really speak for anyone else, has gone through the trauma of a homicide in her family and come out on the other side as resilient and finally forgiving. I'm not quite sure when it's going to air. As I said, it's being recorded this week, so I'm not sure of her timelines, but I'll definitely let y'all know. So if you are interested in hearing a little bit more about my my personal experience and journey, please tune into that. I, I actually could really use the support of my listener community. I hope that I don't ramble or babble on incoherently, and I really hope I don't cry. I, I always like to think I'm so strong in past things, and then when it kind of counts, I tend to crumble, which doesn't really portray my message of moving forwards from trauma very well. But you know, it's all part of the experience and growth. So I want to thank Megan Judge for the opportunity to get my story out there to maybe try and help some others. And as always, thank you so much for listening. You are the very best and my gratitude to you is immeasurable. I hope you have a great week and again, happy anniversary to us. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.